Now, I grew up in the South, and so this was a given. People who, who we just, everybody grew up in church, so everybody knew when the pastor says, he is riven, risen, everybody else said, he is risen. Right. So I just want to give you that little primer, because we're going to do it again. Ready? He is risen. All right. All right. It's been a tough transition to the Northwest coming out of the Bible Belt on, on little things like that, but it's, it's good. It's good. I love it here. Welcome to Emmaus Road Church Easter Sunday as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For many of us here this morning, that event has deep significance, both historical and personal, right? We put our faith and our hope in Jesus, and that's a personal uh, event for us. But it's likely that there are some here this morning for whom that has no uh, personal significance. That's not felt at a heart level. And what I'd like to do this morning is really different from what I normally do. I'm, I'm a guy, I like exposition. I like to just preach through the text. Uh, I, we're in Nehemiah right now. We kind of pause Nehemiah to get through the Easter holiday, and then we're going to pick it back up next week. But uh, I love just going to the text. You know, what, what does the text say? That's easy for me. Uh, trying to put together a sermon on a, on a theme like hope this week was much harder for me. But what I want to do is just present a very simple syllogism this morning. A syllogism is a logical progression of thought made up of premises and then one or more conclusions drawn from, from those premises. So here's my syllogism. It's four, four pieces. Number one, our world is an incredibly beautiful place but also a fallen place. Number two, if all that we have in this life is this closed system, apart from relationship with the one true living God, then life is ultimately meaningless and therefore hopeless. Number three, Jesus is distinct among all religions and religious figures in history, and that distinction is made most clear in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And then number four, my conclusion is that therefore hope is only to be found in Jesus Christ because only Jesus has overcome the grave. So let's just jump in. In order to appreciate the hope that Jesus offers us, we must be willing to see the world as it truly is. A beautiful place, but an incredibly fallen world. In chapter six, Isaiah is having a vision of the temple of God, and, and he's there, and, and one of the things he observes in the temple is that the seraphim are flying, and they're chanting, shouting, singing. We're not quite sure what the Hebrew word means, but, but, they're, but they're saying it loud enough that the foundations are shaking, but they're, they're, they're chanting, holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. God's glory fills the earth. David would write in Psalm 19 these words about the creation. David says, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make him known. They speak without a sound, without a word. The sound of their voices is never heard, yet their message goes out through the whole earth and their words to the ends of the world. So, so the creation is speaking about who God is and what he's like. The hymn writer put it this way, the earth is filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. When you consider the handiwork of God in creation, what is it that stops you in your tracks? 
What is it that just arrests you in those moments? I, I put together my short list. You ready? Here's some of the things that just capture my heart. A, a multitude of stars on a clear, moonless, cloudless night and seeing the band of the Milky Way. I just go, wow. The sound of the ocean waves crashing on the rocky shore at Larrabee State Park up Chuckanut Drive, sitting there just enjoying the sun, basking in that moment. I think standing at the base of Snoqualmie Falls is one of those moments for me. The majesty of, when I have to drive people to the airport, I always pray for a clear day because there's this one section of I-5 when you come around south of Seattle, you see Mount Rainier and it's just this thing rising up out of the earth, you know? And I always think about the lonely mountain in The Hobbit. And I'm like, mountains, Gandalf, you know? I was just excited about the mountain. Uh, one of the things for me, I'm, I'm sharing too much and I don't care. Uh, I, I, like, I like mowing grass. And sometimes I'll just stop because there'll be one or two bald eagles kind of whirling around over me as I'm mowing. And I just think, those are so incredible. Those are majestic animals. And the sunset and the sunrise on any given day when, it, when it's not overcast like this just stops me. Like, what is it for you that just arrests you and stops you in that moment, that haunting? What does it for you? What moments and experiences evoke that haunting in your soul, that feeling of transcendent beauty that's too wonderful and too complex to have simply just popped into being randomly. Uh, That's your creator speaking to you through the creation that he's made. That's what David says in Psalm 19. And though fallen and marred by the sin and rebellion of mankind, there's still this deep beauty that evokes this response in us, this haunting that leaves us longing. And so it was an incredibly beautiful world. But that same nature, that same beauty unleashes earthquakes that level cities. Wildfires that consume everything in their path. Tsunamis that wash away communities. (laughs) Sometimes I think, man, if I could just watch Rainier erupt from a distance, that would still be horrifying. To stand on the overpass at the Smoky Point, like the 206 exit, and see it erupt would be horrifying. Even knowing that I'm like 100 miles away would be just horrific. We have to be willing to see the world as it really is. It's a beautiful but fallen world. And so our hope, our hope is not in the earth. It can't be. The earth is under a curse. It can't provide the hope we're longing for. So our world is a beautiful place, but it's a fallen place. And then here's my second premise. If all we have is this closed system, apart from a relationship with the one true and living God, then life is ultimately meaningless and therefore hopeless. You see, Solomon's observation is spot on thousands of years before Frederick Nietzsche articulated this. Solomon said that if all we have is a closed system under the sun, you'll see that all through Ecclesiastes, the phrase under the sun, it means a system closed and apart and separated from God. If all there is is life under the sun, then life is ultimately meaningless. We are without hope. And as we look around the world today, especially in Western civilization, we're daily witnessing travesty upon travesty. Injustices piling up on themselves. And beneath all of that is this undercurrent of a conviction. It started with the elite in their ivory towers, but this conviction has worked itself down to the kitchen table in every home in America. It's a conviction that ultimately nothing matters. 
Ultimately, nothing has any meaning. Nothing is sacred. In short, life is meaningless. Is this conviction that most of us secretly live with that kind of undergirds our days and nights. It's, it's why. Here's, here's, here's the symptoms. Look for the symptoms. This will tell you if you've embraced this in any way. Um, we're so busy all the time. We have to stay busy because when we stop and get still, we don't, we don't know where our meaning is. Suddenly we're frantic. It's like I can't be still because I don't know who I am. Right? We're we're not just busy. We're we're chasing after all of our toys. Always got to have the new, brightest, shiniest, best. Right? All of our toys, all of our vacations. uh, We're constantly trying to forget that life is meaningless and hopeless, and distract ourselves. Humanity has just searched in every dark corner for meaning. And in these last 50 to 100 years, our full court press has been the pursuit of meaning through the experience of pleasure. So we're going to try everything. And and when life has lost its transcendent, intrinsic meaning, and people realize, or or so they believe, that this life is really all there is, it's an easy choice to self-medicate. It's an easy choice. And the pursuit of pleasure is the only thing that really makes sense. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And this, this is the underlying reason, I don't know if you've seen this, for the growing skepticism the past 30 to 50 years regarding Judeo-Christian morals. I mean, just look at the skepticism. Because first, people became increasingly individualistic um, as a result of pursuing the pleasures that they want. And, and then group identity, kind of tribalism, ceases um, when, when you start to carry the weight of the idea that I'm just going to die and that's all there is. Suddenly, um, I'm, I'm, what I'm determined to do is get as much as I can while I'm still breathing air. That becomes the pursuit. I'm no longer loyal to my group or my tribe or my nation. I'm loyal to me. I'm loyal to me. And that individualism undoes cultural mores and increasingly fragments a society. What once was pleasurable and morally acceptable no longer has any pleasure. And so we move from what was morally acceptable into the things that are morally unacceptable. And because some of that remnant of morality kind of annoyingly kind of stays around and hangs on, um, and because we don't want to deal with guilt and conscience... We begin to shout loudly that I should be accepted for my sin. No, not not accepted. I should be celebrated for my pursuit of pleasure, even though it used to be considered sinful. And is that not what we're seeing today? That's exactly what we're seeing. Celebrate my sin. This is nihilism. I put a label on it for you. Nihilism is all around you. It is the air that we breathe as Americans in the 21st century and no escape and no diversion delivers on the false promise of life, meaning, or hope. It's empty, vacuous, void. Heck of an Easter sermon, Sadie. Feeling really encouraged right about now. You gotta get a clear diagnosis before you can get the cure. You gotta see it clearly. Where do we find hope? You know, we're experiencing an epidemic of hopelessness that's unprecedented in our culture today. Just take inventory of your relationships personally. Think through all the faces of the people that are on your friends list. Um, Who is hopeless among them? Uh, 
Who has bought into the deception and emptiness of nihilism among the people that you know? Well, the answer is your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends, some of your family, maybe even you to some extent. The seemingly wholesome people that go on about their lives day after day, but with a growing, gnawing hole in their souls that all this effort and all this work ultimately doesn't matter because we all die and then comes the nothing according to this bleak worldview. William Shakespeare wrote a very entertaining little tale of star-crossed lovers called A Midsummer's Night Dream. And in the, in the play, uh, the character Puck gives the epilogue. He's the closing statement of the whole shebang. Um, and this is what he says. Puck says, if we shadows have offended, think but this and all is mended, that you have but slumbered here while these visions did appear. You see, the fairies have deceived and manipulated the cast of characters as they trying to find love and trying to find spouses to marry, and all that results is chaos and confusion and tumult, and it just builds throughout the whole play. And at the very end, Puck stands up and says, it was all a dream. It was all a dream. Wake up. And that's just wishful thinking. I think for many of us, we just, we have this, we harbor this hope, this, this sliver that, that it's, we'll just wake up from this nightmare of hopelessness and it will all have been a dream and we find ourselves engaging in such wishful thinking and that is misplaced hope. It's misplaced. We need to define the word hope. I do not think that word means what you think it means. Hope is a verb. Hope is to cherish a desire with anticipation. To desire with expectation of obtaining that thing, whatever it is. To expect it with confidence. That's hope. Not misplaced hope, not a sliver, a chance, a tiny fraction of a chance. It's it's an expectation with confidence. And we don't need to resort to wishful thinking or wringing our hands to wish to dream this whole thing away. Because instead of escaping, instead of embracing escapism and running away from the chaos of a meaningless culture, as followers of Jesus, God has called us to run to it with the gospel. He's called us to run to it, the way the soldiers run towards the battle, the way that firefighters run towards the blaze, not away from it. But what you ask would so enable and encourage people to run towards the thing that is killing our hearts and souls. Listen to the words of the prophet. This is Lamentations chapter three. Listen to these words. The prophet says, he, God, has made my teeth grind on gravel. He's made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. Can you relate to that? It's just so discouraged. I don't even know what happiness is anymore. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. He's speaking of the bitterness of life. It's just so heavy. He says, my soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. You see the universality of human suffering penned by the prophet. He says, I've forgotten what true happiness is. I don't even know what happiness feels like anymore. Afflictions and bitterness of life. He says, my soul is bent over with the weight of all of the afflictions of my life. And then he says this in verse 21. But, 
this I call to mind. And therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It doesn't stop. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him, not in my circumstances, not in the improving of my effort, not in getting the things that I think are gonna satisfy me, but my hope will be in him. Who? Him who? Jesus. My hope is in Jesus. And that's the third premise. Jesus is distinctive among all other religions and religious figures in history. And that distinction is most clearly seen in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Can I just give you a comparative religion snapshot this morning? Can I just run down a couple of the biggies? The issue is not whether Jesus of Nazareth was a real person in history. You know, there's not really any debate on that, even among his detractors. They acknowledge he's a real person in history. And most people love what Jesus taught. Most of it. We, we, we don't have any problem with helping the poor. Yeah, that's, that's good. I like when Jesus says help the poor. Yeah, I like when Jesus says love other people, especially when I'm the object of their love. Love, love me, love me, right? Love other people. Bless people, serve people, like that. Forgive people, I really like that. When we run into trouble in our pluralistic relativistic culture where there's no objective truth anymore is when we bump into these other words of Jesus, like in John 14, 6, where Jesus says, hey, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. And now we've got a problem. Now we've got a problem. These words fly in the face of our cultural sensitivities. Hey, don't, don't all roads lead to God? I mean, are not all religions equally valid? Short answer, no. They're not. They're not. In fact, to say that all religions lead to God is to insult several religions which don't even claim to believe in God. So can we just agree, not all religions lead to God. And while there may be some beauty and elements of truth in many religions, they are not all the same. Buddhism, let me give you the quick rundown. There's no personal God in Buddhism. There's no personal you in Buddhism. (laughs) In fact, the sooner you let go of any notion of being a personal person, the better off you're gonna be. It's really an ethical theory about how to be good without involving God. You can have goodness without God in Buddhism's fundamental assumption. And the answer is in you. It's the eightfold path, right? What about Hinduism? Well, Hinduism has, has a few impersonal gods. They're not really interested in relating to us as, their, as the creation. And then you can only approach them through the lesser gods, lesser deities, and there's, I don't know, 2,000 plus of those. So good luck figuring out which, which one is the way to go. Um, karma pervades both of these systems, which is the opposite of grace, okay? Uh, Islam. Islam, Allah is unknowable. He does not seek relationship with his creation. Muhammad is the final prophet of seven. Don't know if you knew that. There were six before Muhammad. He's the final prophet. And your standing is based on your works and devotion to Allah. The five pillars of Islam, Shahada, your declaration of faith. Salat, daily obligatory prayers, five times a day minimum. Zakat, charitable almsgiving. 
Psalm is fasting, especially during the month of Ramadan when uh, Allah supposedly gave Muhammad the, 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 the revelation of Allah. And then Ahaj, which is a pilgrimage to Mecca, to, to Kaaba to kiss the rock of Abraham. So you gotta do a lot of stuff if you're gonna be Muslim, right? And then well, New Age, let's just throw New Age in there. That's fun. No personal God, just enlightenment and higher levels of consciousness, spirit guides, attaining oneness with the universal consciousness. None of these offer hope. None of these offer transcendent, lasting hope. It's not to be found in any other religion. Gautama Buddha claimed to find the path of enlightenment, but he never claimed to be the path, right? And Jesus said, I'm the way. Every birth in the Hindu system is a rebirth that never ends. The only way to gain assurance of salvation in Islam is to be martyred in jihad. Eastern mysticism of the New Age movement cannot make you right with God. Our world is such a beautiful place, but it's a fallen place. And if all we have is our own best efforts at religion, life is meaningless. But Jesus is distinctive among all religions and religious figures, and that distinction is most clearly seen in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Therefore, hope is only to be found in Jesus Christ because only Jesus has overcome the grave. I'll say it again, you're not excited enough about it. Hope is only found in Jesus Christ because only Jesus has overcome the grave. Consider the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross. God demonstrates his love towards us, Paul says in Romans 5, 8, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Man, he was beaten and scourged, dehydrated. He lost tons of blood, and in his weakened state, he's now being executed and nailed to a wooden cross. And Jesus hanging there speaks the love of the Father to us. He says, Father, Forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. That's, that's crazy. I'm just thinking, if I was being put to death, I don't know that I'd be saying, Lord, forgive these people who are putting me to death. I, I don't know that I'd have the wherewithal to do that. And he's praying for us in that moment, praying for his executioners in that moment. Father, forgive them. He says, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. And scripture says the earth trembled and quaked in that moment and that the veil of the temple that separated the Holy of Holies was torn from top to bottom. No man could do that. That was God opening the way. The way is open now for us to come to God. Even the Roman soldier standing at the foot of the cross, a trained killer, expressed his wonder and he said, surely this was the son of God. Three days later, the stone is rolled away, and he's alive. And, and Peter, can we just talk about Peter for a minute? I mean, Peter, you know, in the garden, he's all gung-ho. I'll never forsake you. I'm not going to deny you. Even if the rest of the dudes, they're wimps, they're going to run away. I'm right here, Jesus. I'm your dude. Hours later, to a, to a girl, to a servant girl, it's like, I don't even know him. Stop talking to me. I, I'm never with him. I don't even know Jesus. Three times he denies him in accordance with prophecy. It's funny because after the resurrection, something happened. And in Acts chapter three, you see Peter standing in front of a crowd of thousands of people saying these words. Not the same Peter, right? He says, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead and we are witnesses of this. 
That's, that's, a, that's a pretty fundamental change. That's a shift. Oh but, oh, but the Roman soldiers stole the body. Or maybe it was the Jewish religious leaders, but somebody stole the body. Can I just say to you this morning, Jesus' enemies would have loved to have produced a dead body especially when this whole resurrection thing began to circulate and spread, it would have killed the movement dead in its tracks. All they would have to do is produce a dead body and then the, nobody believes in the resurrection anymore, right? But they didn't. You know why? Because they couldn't. Jesus was in his body. Well, what about the disciples? They must have stolen Jesus' body and invented this resurrection myth. Really? Trembling Peter and the gang took on a cracked detachment of Roman guards, overpowered them, rolled the stone away, and stole the body. Hmm. Where's the testimony in history from any of the Roman guards? What about those sneaky disciples? Didn't they start a new religion and get rich on it and retire? No. All of the apostles, with the exception of one, were martyred for their faith. All but one died martyrs' deaths at the hands of hostile people. Even Doubting Thomas, who gets a bad rap, right? We call him Doubting Thomas. Even he ended up in India being speared to death for the gospel. The question you need to ask yourself today is what are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with this Jesus? The resurrection from the dead is the cornerstone of Christian belief and doctrine mentioned 104 times in the New Testament. It's a prominent fact of history. What will you do with this Jesus? He alone is our source of hope. Listen to what the scriptures say about this great hope. 1 Peter 1, uh, verses three and four. Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So our hope is rooted in the resurrection. We've been born into an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us. New birth in Jesus is only possible because Jesus raised from the dead. And now we have a living hope. Listen to Paul, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers. I don't want you to go on in ignorance about this, about those who are asleep, those who've died, our brothers and sisters who've died already. We don't grieve as people who have no, what's the word? Hope. We don't grieve like people who don't have hope because we know that we're gonna be raised to life eternal. We don't grieve like that. What a comfort that's been for so many of us who've lost loved ones to stand there in our grief and sorrow and know that we will see them again in heaven. What a blessing. In John's gospel, uh, we're told not to marvel at this for an hour's a coming when, when the tombs will open and, and, and people will hear his voice and come out of the tombs. Those who've done good will go to a resurrection of life and those who've done evil will stand in judgment before God. So, so when this life is over, you face one of two options. Life or judgment. And then in Romans 5, Paul says this, through him, we've obtained access to faith, by faith, into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. <laughs> I, was, I was really tracking with you, Paul, until you said that. We rejoice in sufferings. 
Yeah, because our hope is so overwhelming. It's so solid. It's the bedrock upon which we stand that we can rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces more hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Do you know that kind of hope today? Do you have that hope? Hope that rejoices in suffering. Hope that doesn't disappoint. The God of the universe has issued an invitation to you today to know and embrace hope. Religion says, it's all about me. It's all about me. I'm gonna work really hard And if I work hard enough, I can get God to like me and maybe even love me and accept me. But I've got to do all the work. It's all about what I do. It's a D-O religion. Religion is D-O. I've got to do it. In contrast to that, relationship with Jesus Christ is not all about me. It's all about him. It's all about Jesus. He's already finished the work that was required for God to love me and accept me. He poured out his grace on the cross so that I could be forgiven and have a right relationship with God. And now because of that grace, I'm able to obey and have that relationship. It's not about what I D.O. do. It's about what he's already D.O. and he done. It's finished. I can stand in his finished work. I don't have to do. For some of you this morning, you've already put your faith in Jesus. But the invitation to you is an invitation of renewal. God is inviting you this morning to double down on what it really means and what really matters in this life as you follow him, to embrace the call of being a disciple. Life is short. Hell is hot. The gospel needs to go forward to our neighbors and to the nations. My question for you is, are you all in? Are you all in on the mission Are you consumed with the hope that stirs your soul to be on mission for Jesus because you want other people to have the hope of the gospel? And if you're not, ask him for it. Today, ask him right where you are. There's no altar to come kneel at. Just just right in your chair. You can communicate with the one true and living God right where you are to say, I need that hope. I want to be renewed in that hope. I want you to stir my soul that I'd be passionate for the mission. Ask him, plead with him in prayer to give you a fervor and a passion for the lost. And for those of you who are here today who've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, the invitation God extends to you today is to do that, to do that very thing. Put your faith in Jesus as the one who cleanses you from all your sins and offers forgiveness and healing today. Put your faith in Jesus for the first time today and you will find true and lasting hope for the first time. I ask our worship team to come back and as they lead us through uh, worship and song as we respond, I want to ask you to respond to the invitation. Double down on Jesus if you're already a disciple or put your faith in him for the first time and find hope. But as they play and as we sing, I I wanna clarify one thing about our response this morning in this moment. As you seek prayer with me, please feel free to do that. I'm gonna stand right over here if you want prayer. If you're you're putting your faith in Jesus for the first time, I wanna know that, okay? Please come find me. Um, Here's what I wanna clarify. You coming forward to receive new life in Jesus, if that's you this morning, should not, uh, should not elicit embarrassment. 
should not elicit embarrassment. All around the world today, in fact, we were just talking this morning, the team was praying about Sri Lanka and the bombings in the churches that have happened there. Targeted for Easter. Targeted. All around the world, there are places where people are coming to know Jesus today, right now. And the very first thing that's going to happen to them when they put their faith in Jesus and make a public declaration of their faith in Jesus is that they're they're going to be rejected by their village, rejected by their family, beaten, caned, or killed. Because it's costly in those places to follow him in that way. Can I just say to you this morning, none of those things are going to happen to you. Whatever your fear is, it doesn't compare to our brothers and sisters around the world today. If you come forward and let me know that you want to receive Jesus, you're going to receive not a beating and a stoning. You're going to receive lots of excitement and love and blessing and acceptance. So don't come to Jesus seeking to leave your pride intact. Okay? Just come. Just come as you are. As the team leads, come and receive hope.